News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it isn't exactly what they were looking for, but today the federal health minister will ask the provinces whether or not they will accept this new health care funding deal that was offered up by the prime minister yesterday. But let's break down what was in that deal, what the reaction was like. David Aiken is with us, chief political correspondent for Global News. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simeon. Yeah, there's. There, I'm, I'm sorry to do this so early in the morning, but we're going to have to talk about some math here. And <laughs> let me start with the, the, what, what the federal government put on the table yesterday. What the Fed said is, okay, um, n- no matter what happens, we got some deals already in place at, in which the federal government over the next 10 years would give the provinces an additional $150 billion. That's what the provinces are getting, even if there's no deal, no matter what. And yesterday, Trudeau sat down and said, in addition to that extra $150 billion everybody knew we were going to give you, we're going to give you an extra $46 billion. So that's the new money, $46 billion for the provinces over a decade. Here's how that breaks down. $19 billion over a decade of that 46 was to be used as an additional boost to the Canada Health Transfer. That's the basic funding mechanism every year the feds use to give money to the provinces. And the expectation was that extra money would be for some basic stuff, improving emergency care uh, access, um, hiring more health care workers, helping out with uh, improving pediatric medicine around the country. So that's $19 billion. Then, of that $46 billion in new money over a decade, $25 billion over a decade was to be used by the federal government to negotiate one-on-one deals with each province, recognizing the situation in B.C. is going to be different than the situation in PEI. So... There were some conditions the feds did have for the, these one-on-one deals saying the feds want it spent in four areas. And, and provinces can decide on how much in this area, how much in the other area. And those four areas are improving access to a family doctor, making sure everybody, every household has a family doctor. Two, um, hiring more health care workers. Um, three, improving access to mental health services and then modernizing our health care system with better data collection techniques and so on. Provinces really didn't have much of a beef with that. I think they all shared pretty much the same priorities for that. Then there'd be an extra $2 billion to improve health services in Indigenous communities and a $1.7 billion boost for the wages of personal support workers, who we saw were so valuable and so underpaid during the pandemic. So that was the offer that the federal government put on the table, $46 billion in new money. Okay, so then what was the reaction from the provinces? It felt like they, some of them were clearly expecting more. Yes, not nearly enough. And now I'm coming back to the math again. I've just been talking about deals that had a 10-year period. Let's talk about right now. Right now, this year, the federal government is giving the provinces $45 billion for health. This year, $45 billion. And again, without any deal, that was going to increase next year to $49 billion. So, again, with no deal, this is just agreements that were set in place a decade ago, the provinces were going to get an extra $4 billion next year for health care. Trudeau came to the table yesterday and he said, with that, you know, that, that uh, deal he had, I'm going to keep giving you that $4 billion extra next year, and I'm going to give even more. I'm going to give you $4.9 billion on top of that. So the provinces were looking at getting an extra, basically, $9 billion in health care next year as part of the deal Trudeau tabled. Well, you know what the provinces said? The provinces said, we need $35 billion in new funding next year alone. Not over 10 years, $35 billion basically right now. 
the Fed showed up with $9 billion. So you can see there's a significant gap between what the federal government is offering and the provincial expectations. Again, the, 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 uh, the reaction from the premiers was, to be honest, it wasn't spitting fire and venom. Um, and certainly there are some premiers who are opponents of the prime minister. Um, but they were disappointed with the amount the Fed's uh, offered. They're, and, you know, they, they definitely clearly want some more. There's just no question about that. But what was interesting, there wasn't an argument over these conditions. And that is usually notable for Quebec, which generally says right. no conditions whenever the feds are handling, handing out money. Okay, so then, David, what happens now? So now, yes, it's, it, it's, it's, it's more negotiating time. And everybody sort of said we're, you know, they, they didn't, nobody expected a deal yesterday. Everybody thought a framework for a deal would be set. So, okay. I think they've got some idea about the conditions and, the, and how the federal government wants to see this money spent. Good. Everybody's on board with that. Now it's time to talk about the money. I think what you'll see is the federal government will start to those, negotiate those one-on-one -on -one deals. So the health officials, uh, federal health officials will reach out to BC health officials and say, okay, well, where can we spend your pot? Um, of course, the provincial officials are going to want more. The premiers by themselves are going to get together, they said yesterday, sometime in the next several days. I don't know if that's going to be in person, a conference call, but the premiers are going to get together and figure out where they need to go next. But it looks like we're going to have some back and forth. We asked the Prime Minister yesterday, was that your final offer? And he dodged it. He really didn't say anything. So um, people are still talking. More money is on the table. Just not enough, so far as the uh, the provinces are concerned. Okay, because I I was given the impression I think everybody was that this thing was a done deal that the provinces almost knew what they were getting, but it seems like there was a bit of surprise. David, would would you say that's true? I think that's so, and that's pretty much what the premier said. I mean, when we talked, they had a press conference at they started the meeting at one p.m. Eastern here. They had a press conference at four, and when we started asking them about the money, they said, "Listen, we just learned about this two hours ago." I think I think maybe there have been some early discussions about the quote conditions about the idea that right. the federal government is really keen on this idea of sharing health data across provinces that that's a really everybody thinks an easy way to improve our health system and i think there's broad agreement on that but the actual dollar figure no that was that seemed to be pretty new to the premiers and uh, they uh, i think they were a little disappointed all right well, david thank you so much for that okay thanks Simi. cheers this is mornings with Simi. We've heard all about the politicians and their reactions to this health care proposal from the federal government to the provinces. But what about people who are actually in health care? I mean, how do doctors, for instance, feel about all this back and forth and what is being offered up? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Dr. Rita McCracken, who's an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Medicine. Dr. McCracken, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, I guess if we look on the plus side here, Dr. McCracken, it, we certainly are spending a lot of time talking about health care funding, aren't we? We certainly are, yes. What did you think of this proposal? Well, um, you know, this proposal had a lot of numbers and a lot of information in it. And um, what taking a, a closer look at the materials that were released yesterday, um, what I noticed was that it's not actually a significant increase um, to the amount of money that is uh, typically being transferred. It was uh, more of a uh, description of what the expectation is about that transfer of money, as well as the identification of some new areas of focus and some additional funding for those new areas of focus as well. 
Okay, so what did you think about the new areas of focus? Because I know that the federal government has said they want to see action on some uh, specific items from the provinces, including access to family doctors, hiring more healthcare workers, modernizing the system. What did you think of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought that that was uh, appropriate. You know, we, we can't go a day really without hearing uh, a tragic story of uh, someone missing out on a uh, health issue because they didn't have timely access, either because they don't have a family doctor or uh, they had to wait too long in emergency. So, you know, absolutely um, an a increased focus on reorganizing how people have access to primary care or family doctors or nurse practitioners in the community. Um, we also have been hearing, and I certainly am feeling, um, healthcare workers are exhausted, and this has been a long three years, and um, there's been lots of identification of areas where we need more people and we need better supports for the people that are working in the system. And um, there hasn't really been much of a modernization of our system since it got started in um, between 1960 and 1980. I was wondering about that, too. How long has this kind of tug of war been going on between the two sides over health care funding? Like, is this new or has this always been the case? Um, you know, I'm not a, um, a historical expert on um, health care, but at least for the last 20 years, um, this kind of um, uh, pointed conversation between uh, the federal government and the provincial government uh, has been going on. We, we do have essentially uh, 13 separate healthcare systems within Canada, um, all of which rely heavily on um, investment from the federal government. And there has been, uh, you know, so we've got essentially uh, 13 provincial governments and one federal government, each having their own elections uh, every three to five years. And so you can imagine that um, even in a perfectly worded uh, financial transfer situation, there was bound to be trouble. Um, and I think I think we're just continuing to see that the, the, the tensions that have uh, exist just in how we have structured how we finance uh, healthcare in Canada. Dr. McCracken, what has the modernizing the system part I thought was really interesting because I think there's a, a lot of concerns about that. What stops us from modernizing the system to having more electronic records for, for getting all of that up to date? Well, I think there's two things. So, one, the majority of uh, healthcare right now is delivered by family doctors. Um, even though we have a tremendous shortage of family doctors, you know, the vast uh, majority of the number of healthcare encounters in the country happen in family doctors' offices. And those offices are run by the family doctors themselves, by and large, not uh, entirely, but about 70 to 80 percent of them are. And so each family doctor needs to set up their own IT system um, or use paper charts, which is uh, increasingly less frequent. Um, so we have all, we have a very distributed um, system of delivering the health care and then gathering information back from that system uh, has never really been coordinated. And there are some very appropriate concerns about uh, privacy of the data and how is it going to be managed. 
I think the other thing that we see that is very interesting and important in 2023 is uh, recognition that patients own their own healthcare data, just like you own your own banking data. That if you were to go on a trip to Toronto, you'd take your banking data with you via your credit cards and your right. um Interact card, uh, but that is not the case with our healthcare data. And so I think you know, once most people have a have a thought about it, they're like, yeah, I, I would like to have better access to my own healthcare data, and I would like it to be more transferable. But we just don't have those systems set up to make that happen yet. And that is one of the things that this money can help fund. Right? Do you see us moving towards that? Yes, absolutely. I I, I don't see how we can't move towards that. And what kind of um, efficiencies do you think that would offer to the system? Um, well, I think for patients, um, there would be a reduced chance of uh, errors or um, repetition of testing that they would have um, if they had that access to that data themselves and were able to share it readily um, when encountering a new healthcare provider. And then, you know, as a researcher, I'm also very interested in what that data could tell us uh, about, for example, which depression treatments are associated with the most predictable improvement in system symptoms. Sorry. Uh, so, if we were able to take a look at, um, in a safe, uh, anonymized way, about the data that of how we're treating people, what's working best. You know, we saw this during the pandemic where we would see um, what worked well to reduce the uh, transfer of uh, COVID in certain communities, and then we could scale that up and share it. And those kinds of learnings from the healthcare system are really rare and far between right now. And having a better data management system could really help improve health outcomes for individuals as well as the population. Like, are you hopeful then when you see meetings like what happened yesterday, although I know it didn't go as smoothly as people were hoping it would, but they're still talking, right? Exactly. Yes. And I, I think that, that that's what we need. We need that communication and we need a commitment to working together um, and, let's, uh, and, and, and shared visions and shared goals that can be agreed upon. And I think that is a step in the right direction. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Dr. Rita McCracken, who's an assistant professor and researcher at the University of uh, British Columbia's Faculty of Medicine. It is good that they're talking about healthcare, good that they're talking about more money for healthcare, but how can we make some of these innovations happen that Dr. McCracken just outlined there that I think would be helpful to the system and create some efficiencies there for you, right? And make it easier for you to get proper care. And if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. If you were going to go to a museum that was all about BC's history, what would you expect to see? What stories do you think that museum should tell? Well, that's a question that is hopefully being answered by British Columbians right now, at least those who have been participating in public consultations about the future of the Royal BC Museum. And joining us now to talk more about that is Lisa Dubois, who's the CEO of the Royal BC Museum. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Now, I know you've been doing these public consultations. How have they been going? They've been going very well. And um, we just recently had a few um, in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. And we certainly look forward to coming back. But the first ones were very insightful. Okay. And what are you hearing from people? Well, it's interesting because there's a couple of um, stages to the process that we're going through. So first, 
what is really important is that the, the first aspect of these visits that we're having are really all about context setting. So it's about us providing information to the public about where we're at at the museum, some context to the last year, which has been you know, very interesting and lots of press about the museum, and making sure that when we come back for the formal engagement, that we are having very well-informed conversations with the public. So, so there's sort of some, some context setting with respect to our process, and that's, I think, being received well, and it's helpful in helping people sort of place where we're at and the conversations we're having right now versus what we'll be talking about early in the fall. And then there's also a very clear conversation around diversity and the importance that the BC Museum be, be able to show and speak openly about the full history of the province and that um, and that everybody is included. We're not leaving anybody behind. And of course, that is very important for us. And in order for us to do that, some other feedback that we had was around the advertising that we're going through from an engagement perspective and also, you know, location and making sure that we're in accessible locations that we are um, really reaching those voices that don't typically come out to conversations like that. And we're taking those comments seriously. And we look forward to coming back and still, of course, working with good partners. We were at the Museum of Surrey and the Museum of Vancouver and the Richmond Cultural Centre. And they were all very welcoming to us and fantastic partners. We recognize that we probably have to mix up our locations a bit and make sure that we are reaching some of those um, community members that are in different locations and tend to visit different types of cultural centers or arts centers. And we really appreciated that feedback. Do you think, were there some misconceptions do you think that people had? You you very um, glass half full approach to, yeah, the museum's been in the news in the last year. Uh, there was a lot of press about that. Did you feel that were people understood? What did you want people to know about the museum? Yeah, I wanted the I wanted people to first understand um, the facility challenges that we have at the museum, and you know why the government would have considered looking at some sort of updating. And um, you know, in this instance, the decision was a full museum. That's obviously not the only solution that is available. And you know, there's different permutations of about what the facility might look like. But a lot of people don't have the context to the real challenges and the age of the museum and what that means from a functionality perspective. So it's an opportunity for us to give information about that. Some of the things we've heard loud and clear with, in, in almost all of our um, sessions is, wow, I wish I would have known that. And so, you know, getting that feedback and being able to have a conversation about it is really important because it sets the stage for those formal engagement sessions that we'll have in the fall about, okay, so now people are better informed. What do we do about it? Right. Okay. So the process that starts in the fall, when is that happening and how can people get involved? Well, we're still, you know, only in the beginning parts of, of this dialogue session. We've had conversations in the Victoria capital region. We're going to be visiting more of the island next week. We visited Vancouver and Lower Mainland, but we still have, you know, all of the different regions of the province to go. That will wrap up the end of March, 
beginning of April. We're actually leaving some open space in April so that if there's a desire to have us back by certain communities or perhaps certain communities have heard about it and want to have us there, that we can go and and have an opportunity to engage again, like in this dialogue phase. And then, yes, in the fall, we will then be going back and really rolling up our sleeves with respect to the common themes that we've heard about telling a fulsome history, mm-hmm. et cetera, and having those much more pointed conversations then. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's Alicia Dubois, CEO of the Royal BC Museum. Seems simple, right? Before we build a big new BC museum, we should know what people want in it and what it should look like. Kind of simple, but we are now seeing that process happen after, yes, the museum was in the news a lot in the past year. I'm like, what would you tell them? If public consultations, what would you want to see in that museum? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Mom. 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 I didn't know. I didn't know one pill. One time could kill me. That commercial is so hard to watch because there's so much truth to that. One pill can kill somebody because of our toxic drug supply out there. And BC has just seen an ever-increasing number of overdoses, so much so that now when we talk about addictions, when we talk about mental health, these these are going back and forth now in political debates. And we've seen a lot of that. It was the subject in question period yesterday too. It did get me thinking though. So now we're talking about it. But what is that like for the families who have suffered and had to deal with the fallout from this crisis? How do they see this back and forth debate and what is happening out there? So for that, we turn to Marlise Williams, who is the mother of Logan Williams. Uh, And she, of course, she funded that commercial as well. Marlise, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. Tell me about the commercial. Oh, well, I'm part of a Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, and we decided to make an awareness campaign, so I storyboarded that commercial that you can find on www.the-fact.org. And it's just an awareness commercial dedicated really primarily to youth, because I think that is a demographic that's actually getting quite ignored. Um, you know, they're just can't be wait lists for kids. They just can't. So anyways, we, we decided to build awareness around uh, youth being deceptively poisoned with contaminated pills. And a lot of people just don't know that. So I have, I have a lot in my, in my vault that I want to do, but bet. that's just my first one. I'll bet. Oh, and because so, you know this firsthand, you went through this with your son, Logan. Unfortunately, and you know, it's so horrific, Simi, because I'm not the only one. I uh, co-facilitate a grief group. And imagine last week we had seven new members. Seven. It's a group that you don't want new members. And um, we had a couple that came in and they had lost their 13-year-old from Port Moody due to fentanyl poisoning. And he, uh, you know, ordered a, a pill that he thought was Xanax on Snapchat and had no clue, and the parents went to wake him up in the morning, and he was gone. 
I think that's where there's a big disconnect with the general public. Um, a lot of times I'll speak to someone and they, I say my son died and they say, how? And I say fentanyl poisoning and they go, what, what? They say, what's that, which is really scary. So once I've explained that, they go, well, wait a minute. Why did he take fentanyl? I said, he didn't. And they go, well, what do you mean? You just said he died of fentanyl. I said, he didn't purposely take it. The pill was laced with fentanyl. And then they're like, what? I have teens. And then they're worried. And I think that's where there really needs to be some sort of awareness for parents and young kids to know that it can be one pill one time. Marlies, when you hear the debate now, right, there's a lot of discussion about this politically, especially here in BC. It was the subject in question period yesterday, a lot of back and forth between the parties. How does that make you feel? How does that make other parents feel when they see this? It's like political discussion, but what does that break down for you? Well, I have to be honest, I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm glad that it's it's an it's become such a big issue that there that there is an agenda for both sides. So that is actually very 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 good and I think um regardless of politics, everyone wants to see change. Every no one wants to see people dying. Um so I think it's extremely important that we keep the conversation going and and talk about what could we do to eliminate or or diffuse these high number deaths. Right. And so the politicians are getting involved in talking. Do you hear anything in those suggestions or those solutions that you think might work? Well, I I, I know Kevin Falcon um, has mentioned secure care, and I can assure you in this group there are several mothers that have lost a teen. So I'm not the only one, 15, 16-year-olds. And they, you know, the devastation is beyond. And they have, um, we do all believe in secure care because when you have a child, it's they, they haven't hit, rock, there is no rock bottom, bottom with fentanyl. It's, you could die that day or next week. So we do need secure care. Um, I think that would be extremely helpful and there's, I, I really like some of some of what I'm hearing. Um, I like this, uh, you know, treatment on demand. That weightless. I remember, and I know things are changing slowly, but I remember when I was trying to get help for Logan, and I describe it as like walking uphill with two bowling balls. Seriously, delays, weights. You're too young. You're not bad enough. It's just a phase. I'm overreacting as the mom. That's what they would say. They'd say, oh, it's okay. I, I mean, I ended up having to go to the States uh, with Logan to, to get treatment. And, and, you know, that's just not an option for, for most people. Right. When you here. say secure care, uh, what does that mean exactly? Well, it would mean that if, if you know, most addicts, they, if they don't, you know, you have to hit them. When they say, I want help, that's when they need it right away. Tomorrow they might not say they need help. So with with a child, with usually teens, they're in complete denial if they're just starting out, say, starting to smoke weed, and then it can escalate. And then um, the parent is, is frantic, worried, and the teen, of course, is in, in denial. But I think it would be great if we could have something that basically – um, I hate to use the word force, but it, it, I think with, with youth, specifically youth, uh, they are the future of our nation, and we need to help them even, because sometimes people need help even though they don't think they need it. And right, so how, how do you get through to them, though? Like, let's say, a teen who thinks that they're indestructible. 
right? Well, that's why it would be called forced care, right? right? But even when you force them into care, how can you make sure that message gets through? It doesn't always, but sometimes it can. I'm actually in touch with a girl that went to um, the facility that Logan did in the States, and she was forced to go. And she says, I'm so glad that I was forced to go because now I'm, you know, a taxpaying citizen. I I have a great career. I went to, to university. But I, you know, I was forced to go there for a year. And that's another thing. It can't, I, I, I like the idea, again, uh, Kevin Falcon has long-term treatment plans, long-term. Six-week, eight-week, and then you're out. It, 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 every, I mean, every case is different. We know that um, addiction is very complex, and it needs a multifaceted approach. I understand that. But it, long-term care seems to, be, seems to, to, to do better in most cases. Right. So then, Marlies, when you hear everybody talking about this, then do you feel like it's making progress? I I feel it's making progress, but I still feel that a lot of, even maybe some listeners, if you haven't been affected by addiction, you think, um, I can see why there's stigma. I really don't, people think, oh gosh, you know, we, they always feature the downtown east side, but when we look at the facts, we see that, you know, 55% are dying in their home. A lot of these people are, are, are you know, my son is not downtown east side. He was a, a very successful actor who went to a private school. And recently one of the new members, she came in, a wife, a young mother with two little kids, and the youngest is severely disabled, and she lost her husband to fentanyl poisoning, had no clue. He took some, you know, a recreational cocaine addict, didn't know that fentanyl was laced. He owns a moving company, a great father. It's hitting people that don't know that that this can happen. And I think that that's where there's a big disconnect because people always are secure when they go, oh, well, that won't happen to us. We're not like that. But it can happen because these Drugs are just are being laced with fentanyl, so there's no clean drug out there. And you don't know what happens behind closed doors. Marlies, thank you so much for joining us oh, this morning. You're the best, and thank you for keeping the conversation going. I'm so happy for CKW Global. I really appreciate it. Anything we can do to help. That's Marlies Williams, uh, mother of Logan Williams. He died of fentanyl poisoning when he was he's 16 years old. That's three years ago. And those stories that she just told there of the people who were arriving at their grief group, Shocking. And those are the stories that we don't hear about because people think, well, no, it's just some downtown east side problem. It is not. Those those are the stories of where this is happening, where it's hitting hardest. This is Mornings with Simi. Today in the news, you're going to be hearing a lot about this project out in Surrey, and it's really quite unique. It's called the Legion Veterans Village. It is the first of its kind. $300 million plus social infrastructure project. We wanted to learn about this. We were so curious about what went into this and how it became reality. So joining us now is Rowena Rosati, who's the former executive director of clinical programs and operations for the Fraser Health Authority and is the project lead of the Legion Veterans Village. Good morning, Rowena. Good morning, Simeon. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so interested about this project. Tell me, how did it come about? We were inspired by Captain Trevor Green a number of years ago and his uh, rehabilitation journey, his courage uh, following a very devastating 
uh, axe attack that he uh, experienced in Afghanistan. And through our conversations with uh, Trevor on how to help him recover from that injury due to his service, we met the Legion. Uh, the Legion were fundraising to support his rehabilitation and robotics through an exoskeleton. And we realized through that conversation that the Legions are positioned to do something really quite inspiring in each of the communities, but they're a new generation of veterans that they are supporting. And so we started to work with the Legion, the BC Yukon Command. Uh, we were able to engage the longtime story developer, uh, the LARC Group, and we we visioned um, what would be the most inspiring future for legions and how we could support veterans and first responders in their care and service uh, following sometimes devastating outcomes and injuries uh, that they experience. And this vision came to be, and we've been working for eight years tirelessly in partnership with many, many hands uh, to make this day a possibility. This sounds like a a one-stop shop for veterans where they can get treatment for, you know, PTSD, mental health, have a place to live, get medical treatment. Is that what it is? You bet. Uh, That's what makes it unique is that the the clinical services here include primary care, dental care, uh, mental health, rehabilitation, access to some of the -the state-of-the-art, most novel, innovative technologies that can support their recovery from end to end. And currently, that what we heard from veterans and first responders was that there remains gaps in, in the services that they're able to access following their service and that those gaps sometimes result in catastrophic outcomes. And so the goal here was to create these facilities that would wrap around um, support and help them navigate what they needed and also uh, complemented by 91 affordable housing units and market housing Uh, that allow um, priority for first responders, veterans, and their families, um, including, you know, children and families, to to live and be supported in in one single facility so that we can close those gaps. So what has demand been like for those units? The demand uh, has has been great before they were uh, even commissioned. Um, And uh, in fact, we've had uh, inquiries from across the country as as the word has gotten out uh, not only here in the lower mainland but across the province um, and uh, as far away as Ontario uh, we have a contingent coming from Ontario today uh, that want to come and understand what is happening here and how can we work in partnership to build more of these across the country uh, and support all of our Canadian veterans and first responders. Well, this sounds amazing then, Rowena. Like, what did it take to make this reality? I would say um, tenacity, uh, determination, um, and I think uh, most inspiring would be just passion. Uh, When people realize, um, you know, the the lack of care and service and the continuity of that care and see the devastating outcomes uh, that our veterans and first responders um, experience, uh, it, your compassion um, is engaged to do something really special and really different. And so we've never had any lack of support from any group or any entity. Uh, everyone wanted to be a part of this. And I think that energy over the years uh, has allowed us to really pull this off because in the early days, People felt it was quite inspiring, but they weren't sure that it could be executed. And because of um, the absolute dedication of every one of our partners, 
again, we're, we're here to enjoy um, this opening today. Yeah, tell me about the Center of Clinical Excellence, which is also going to be a part of this project. Uh, this sounds like a very unique center for health. It is, and it will be focused on the health needs and the unique and spe- specific health needs of, of veterans first responders and their families. Um, but it has a, a, an entire uh, center for primary care. It has a center for uh, mental health, uh, support. It has a center for dental health um, and all other health needs in between. That is complemented then by uh, a center of rehabilitation um, that focuses on robotics and technology and really innovative interventions. That also was complemented by uh, a Surrey Neuroplasticity Clinic, which is focusing specifically on on brain innovations uh, and technologies that are supporting uh, neuroplasticity. Oftentimes, uh, if we can help to use physical rehabilitation, it also has significant impacts on mental health and particularly in the areas of PTSD. So all of these uh, services all together, we also have a, a research foundation that will be supporting the evaluation of all of these interventions because we really want to accelerate getting these into the hands of people that would benefit. Uh, and we, we want to do that as quickly as possible. Yeah, Rowena, this sounds like a, almost like a life-changing place for people to live, isn't it? That's what we intend. That's what we hope. And, and uh, our, our goal was for this to be quite transformative and that what we, what we can do here in this centre, what we can learn and understand here at this centre, we want to be able to take outwards uh, and to be able to influence and inform clinical care and clinical delivery models, not just here at Legion Veterans Village, but across the continuum of healthcare uh, from coast to coast. So you think you can provide an example, perhaps, that other organizations, other groups can follow? Absolutely. And we, we built this specifically uh, in a form to create a template that we can share um, this model And we'll start by building partners and partnerships with other agencies across the country, other clinical groups across the country. And we'll start working with legions um, in provinces across the country so that we can replicate this or find some partnership format that we would be able to share this and them to have ease in implementation and not necessarily have to take the eight years it took us to deliver this project, uh, we want it all packaged up nicely so that it can uh, be easily implemented. Oh, I hope so. This sounds amazing. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me.